Lord be with you. With thy spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your church. We thank you for putting us here at All Saints. And we ask your blessing on this time as we continue in the catechism. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, well, let's uh, open up to page 8 and go through um, the church and the ministry, and then we'll pick up towards the bottom of page 9. Okay. When were you made a member of the church? I was made a member of the church when I was baptized. What is the church? The church is the body of which Jesus Christ is the head, and all baptized people are the members. How is the church described in the Apostles and Nicene creeds? The church is described in the creeds as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What do we mean by these words? We mean that the church is one because it is one body under one head, holy because the Holy Spirit dwells within it and sanctifies its members, Catholic because it is universal, holding sincerely the faith of all time in all countries and for all people, and is sent to preach the gospel to the whole world, apostolic because it continues firmly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. What is your binding duty as a member of the church? My binding duty is to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, and to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. What special means does the church provide to, you, to help you do all these things? The church provides the laying on of hands or confirmation. Here, after renewing the promises and vows of my baptism and declaring my loyalty and devotion to Christ as my master, I receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit to give me inner strength. After you have been confirmed, what great privilege does our Lord provide for you? Our Lord provides the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, for the continual strengthening and refreshing of my soul. What order of ministers are there in the church? Bishops, priests, and deacons, which orders have been in the church from earliest times. What is the office of a bishop? The office of a bishop is to be the chief pastor in the church, to confer holy orders, and to administer confirmation. What is the office of a priest? The office of a priest is to minister to the people committed to his care, to preach the word of God, to baptize, to celebrate Holy Communion, and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. What is the office of a deacon? The office of a deacon is to assist the priest in divine service and his other administrations under the direction of the bishop. What are the main seasons of the church year? The main seasons of the church year are Advent, when we anticipate the coming of the Lord, Christmastide, when we celebrate the Nativity of Jesus, Epiphanytide, when we celebrate the Lord's revelation to the nations, Lent, a season of repentance in anticipation of the resurrection, Holy Week, when we remember the resurrection of our Lord, Ascension Tide, when we celebrate our Lord's, I'm sorry, Easter Tide, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, Ascension Tide, when we celebrate our Lord's ascension into heaven and seating at the right hand of the Father. Pentecost or Whit Sunday, when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Trinity Tide, when we celebrate the Holy Trinity and grow in our walk with God. What are the typical colors associated with these seasons? The traditional colors associated with the church year are Violet for Advent, Lent, Holy Week, and Funerals, a somber color of anticipation and repentance, 
White for Christmas tide, Epiphany, Easter tide, Ascension tide, Trinity Sunday, and funerals, a color of celebration. Green for Epiphany tide and Trinity tide, a color of growth and life for ordinary time. Red for Pentecost confirmations, ordinations, and martyrs' feasts, a color representing the fire of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Bible? The Holy Bible or Holy Scripture is God's Word and contains all things necessary for salvation. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself, tells the story of God and His people, and contains the teachings of Christ and His Apostles. Everything we must believe is read in or proved by Scripture. How many books are in the Bible? The Bible includes the 39 books of the Hebrew Old Testament and the 27 books of the Greek New Testament. These are the 66 canonical books of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. Okay, so last week, um, some of y'all were not here, but we did talk about confirmation, and um, we talked about that attachment of the Lord's Supper to confirmation. Um, we are not going to go into that anymore this week unless y'all really, really, really want to. No, all right. <laughs> so let's talk about holy orders today, the three orders of ministers. So we begin with what orders of ministers are there in the church? Bishops, priests, and deacons, which orders have been in the church from the earliest times? Okay, so the first question is, um, what do we mean by earliest times? As I pick up my water bottle. Okay, so... Um, Let's, let's open up to the preface in the prayer book, the preface to the, uh, um, to the, comp, to the um, ordinal. So the ordinal is technically not part of the prayer book proper, but it has been bound with the prayer book for a very, very, very long time. Um, you're going to find this preface on page 520... Oh, seven? 29? 29. 529 in the 28 prayer book. Okay. So, the, yeah, the ordinal has always has been bound with the prayer book forever and ever and ever, and it's considered to be um, one of the formularies in the Anglican tradition. So our three formularies, our three main foundational documents, um, aside from Scripture, of course, are the prayer book, the ordinal, and the 39 Articles of Religion. To a lesser extent, the homilies have been considered a formulary, but the homilies are a little uneven doctrinally. Um, they're a great text, I, I love them. Um, one of these days, I intend to um, either live stream or, or podcast morning and evening prayer, and I'll probably read from the homilies um, each day, one of the homilies, but that's after the girls are both a little bit older and life is a little bit more stable. Uh, <laughs> 2019, life is not very stable, but uh, that's, that's okay. Okay, so in the preface, this is what we have. So our, our, our ordinal here was revised um, for the American church in 1792, but that means pretty much it, it, the thing we did right after we started was get this ordinal. So we were using the English orders of everything for a long time. Um, the first prayer book, I think, is in 1780-something. The ordinal, 1792. The article's 1801. So we're pretty much 
you know, within a generation after the revolution, we're, we're, we're revising things for our own particular state. And some, and the ordinal didn't really get into any significant changes. So here's, here's what we have, and this was, this was penned, I believe, by Cranmer himself in 1549, and we just basically adapted it for the American version. He says, it is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in the church, bishops, priests, and deacons, which offices were evermore had in such reverent estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he were first called, tried, examined, and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same, and then talks about how one becomes these in the rest of the preface. So Cramer was saying that Scripture itself lays witness to this threefold order. Our Baptist and Presbyterian friends would disagree wholeheartedly. <laughs> and um, they're, they're, so, so here's, here's the way we kind of unpack that. First of all, um, we do see in the Greek New Testament all three terms— Episcopus, which comes becomes bishop, it kind of gets corrupted into bishop, literally meaning overseer. Uh, Presbyteros, which um, gets corrupted into priest, literally meaning an elder. Um, and then diaconus, which gets not very corrupted, but nonetheless into English as deacon, which literally means servant. All three of these are, are explicit in Holy Scripture. The big question comes, there's two, two big questions that comes. First of all, is the diaconate something that you need to be ordained to? Um, that was the big question we had in my Baptist university, the, uh, the uh, uh, Dr. Angela. The, I'm not sure deacons need to get ordained to deke. Well, um, <laughs> you, you know, that sort of thing. Well, but we do see, if, if we see the, the precedent for the deacons being the seven men um, set aside, um, Philip, Stephen, and those guys in Acts, what is that, Acts chapter 7, Father Barry? I believe it's Acts chapter 7. I think you're right. I'll, I'll let you do the homework while I talk. <laughs> um, that, that, that they are, the, their hand, the hands are, they do have the imposition of hands, which implies ordination of some sort. And, you know, there are some that question whether these were really deacons, but the office of deacon has always looked to that precedent for its job description. Um, those, those works of service to free up the apostles and, and elders to, to minister the gospel. Chapter 6. Okay, I was one off. Thank you, Father. Um, so that's one question. I think we can, we can say that, that those proto-deacons and acts give us a precedent which does tell us, yes, imposition of hands, thus, yes, um, ordination of some sort. The second question is, in the scriptures, is there a difference between the bishop and the priest? Is, is Episcopus and Presbyterus interchangeable in the New Testament? Contextually, the answer probably is yes. In the New Testament, we don't seem to see a differentiation between those two terms in the way they're used. However, do we see a difference in the way that some folks are, are, are treated versus other folks when it comes to authority? And the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Even if the terms had not developed to, to their fullest extent yet by the time the New Testament was over, 
we certainly see that um, Titus and Timothy were given a particular set of duties that ordinary elders were not. And what were those duties that St. Paul was giving them? Well, not just to oversee the church. That is true, because some of the, some of the, the language of overseeing is used for the, for the elders as well. I mean, that language is, 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 is interchangeable. They were given a specific duty by Paul that is not that you don't see given to just elders and pastors in general. And that duty is to appoint more elders and pastors. That, 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 that special job of, of um, ordaining new ministers of the gospel. Um, there was a, uh, in, in the, in the um, 17th century, an Archbishop of Ireland, um, James Usher, um, I recently read a, a um, release of some of his, his books on ecclesiology that was re-released by the Davenant Institute. I highly recommend this, especially for his two essays on the episcopacy. So the, what Usher argues, and I think this is a really good argument, he says, okay, first of all, when we look at the Old Testament, we see a hierarchy among the ministers. Not every priest is, is equal. Right? You have your high priests and you have your regular priests. And in the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is the version that is primarily being used in the church, in the, in the, in the apostles' day, by the apostles themselves, it seems, and, and possibly even by our Lord. At least, you know, he's, the way he quotes seems to be more of the Septuagint, so we don't know if that's because the gospel writers were using that when they were recalling his quotes or, or what. I mean, that's... That's beyond this talk. But the point is, that was the translation of the scriptures in the first century for most of the church, was the Greek, this Greek translation we call the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, the, um, they're calling the, the, um, the heads of the priests, and not just the high priests, but the heads of the priestly families, they're calling them the episcopus. They're calling them the bishops, the overseers, of the rest of the priests. So that's one issue. Um, second, and he, and he says, okay, certainly we're not, we don't say that the same sacrificial priesthood exists in the New Testament as in the Old Testament. There is a distinction, but the Old Testament gives us a precedence for the way the ministry works. And then he goes on to say that, that um, and this is a very interesting argument. I, I had not heard this until I read Usher. Um, then Usher goes on to say um, that in the book of Revelation, when Christ is addressing the churches, he's addressing the angel of the church, and that's not a heavenly messenger, that's the bishop. And the, the idea being that he's addressing, the, from context, he's addressing a human leader, and we know from other places in scriptures that Ephesus and some of those other big churches had multiple presbyters there. So who is he talking to? He's talking to the presbyter that's overseeing all the other presbyters. And since in those days, Episcopus and Presbyterus are used interchangeably, um, Usher's argument is that this word angel, which literally means messenger, representative, is being addressed to the guy that's functioning as the bishop in Ephesus, Smyrna, and all those other places. It's a very interesting argument. Um, I think it holds some weight, and I do think we see from the context of Acts and the epistles that there are some 
leaders that have more authority than other leaders. Certainly the apostles do, but there's even some of the guys that are not apostles that are given a certain measure of the apostolic um, duties, specifically regarding appointing new, new ministers. But we also see Ignatius of Antioch, who's writing 12 years after the Apostle John. He was a disciple of John. That Ignatius is addressing the president of the presbyters, the guy that's overseeing the presbyters as the bishop, as the episcopus. And that we really see that... And so Ignatius has this very same, very um, famous phrase... Um, in his letter to, the, to, to Ephesus, he writes to the, to the priests, to the presbytery, he says, um, he says that, that the presbytery in Ephesus was so conjoined with their bishops as the strings are with a harp. And then he says, um, that is, they're with, a, with an undivided mind. And he, and he tells them to obey both the bishop and the presbytery with an undivided mind. And then he says to the church in Smyrna, he tells them to follow your bishop as Christ Jesus did his father and follow the presbytery as you would the apostles. So he's, <laughs> and he's writing to um, another famous church father, Polycarp. And so we, we, we go on to see that there is a hierarchy and that that distinction between the presbyters and the bishops, if not in the apostles' day, in terms of those terms, which it probably isn't in the apostles' day, by the next generation it had, it had begun to take root. Um, that when Ignatius isn't having to explain those terms, at least in the parts of the church that he's writing to, um, by then, in that part of the church, presbyter and, and bishop are, are different offices, with the, with the bishop being the one who presides over the local presbytery. The way it seems that this works is that the main threefold office in the time of the apostles would have been apostles, presbyters, and deacons, with some of those presbyters having more authority delegated to them by the apostles, um, folks like Titus and Timothy. Um, and that if there is any differentiation between a, a, a bishop and a priest, it's similar to how we would have one of our priests here locally as our archdeacon, so he, he kind of represents our local presbytery before the bishop. Um, he, he presides over the meetings of the archdeaconry, that sort of thing. It seems that's the way it is in the, in the apostles' time. By the next generation, it seems that things were beginning to get to the point where with the exception of that idea that the apostles had that unique revelation of Christ, the, the apostles' authority has been delegated to the bishops. And so the, the, we do have those that are presiding over the presbytery um, are, have a certain measure of apostolic authority, by the time we leave the second century, that's absolutely universal. That that's just the way the church has done it. And, and, and so we don't know exactly how that change happens. We know going into the first century, this is beginning, and leaving, the, or going into the second century, rather, this is beginning. Leaving the second century, it's explicit. And we don't see a departure from this at all until the Reformation when some of the Protestants started to question it. Um, questions so far? We're going to spend a couple weeks on, on holy orders because there's a lot of history. This week is probably going to be mostly history, uh, but we'll get into some other stuff. So any questions on that part, on the ancient part of the history? Okay, let's fast forward then to um, post-Reformation times. So in the Reformation, what happens is... 
Um, the Rome is asserting more authority for the bishops and specifically for the Pope than what we see Scripture gives anybody, even even apostles. You know, the 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 the, uh, the 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 Pope is having this unique authority as the representative of Christ. Um, you know, to have revelation in a way that we don't see outside of Scripture, that sort of thing, and um, he gives that authority or measure that authority to all the bishops. But the problem is they know from experience that the episcopacy is largely corrupt and the papacy is super corrupt in those days. So how can you claim to have that level of, of special grace, that special revelation, that holiness, if there's no fruit of that in the way you're actually living? So that's the big question that comes, before, comes up at the time of the Reformation. So most of the reformers say, they get, they get this pushism that say, the episcopacy as a separate office can't be proved from scripture, therefore we can't make it a must-believe issue, but it's the best way of doing things when you can have it done the right way. What happens is in the Lutheran world, so um, all the places that get influenced by specifically by Luther, because pretty much early on, we end up with two main branches of the Reformation, the Lutherans and the Reformed, and there's a lot of cross-pollination at the time of the English Reformation, but you, know, you really have basically two main branches of the Protestants, the Lutherans and the Reformed. In the Lutheran world, some parts of the Lutheran world were able to retain bishops because they had bishops that came over and, and, and defected from Rome. In Germany, that was not the case. In the, in, the, in the Lutheran parts of, Ger of what becomes Germany, um, none of the bishops came over, and so the Lutherans basically had to set up church without bishops. Because the, the alternative was to be under Rome, who was so corrupt that it was you know, problematic. <coughs> in the Reformed world, they never really did have bishops that come, come across, with the exception of England, which, again, England has... It's kind of straddling the border between the Lutheran and Reformed world at the time. It's very much a bridge. Both the Lutherans and the Reformed looked to England at some point. We have letters from Calvin to Cranmer. We have letters between some of the Lutheran leaders and Cranmer, and even some going to Henry VIII himself. Um, they're, they're wanting to, to get the episcopacy back through England. But political fights and breakdowns in communication or various other extenuating circumstances. Like the, the, the evidence is that the letters from, from Calvin to Cranmer, Cranmer got them, but then there was some big changes and he was never able to do anything about it. Um, with the Lutherans, it was more Henry kind of got into a fight with some of the Lutheran princes. Um, but basically because of earthly politics, um, this never gets implemented. Most of what we know from our, in, in the American context of, of Presbyterianism and Baptist life, which is our big Protestant world here in America, actually comes from, from internal fights within the Church of England. So later on, you know, we're, we're talking 17th century here, 
um, 17th century, so after things have settled down in England, you've got a group within the Church of England that is saying there's no difference from bishops and presbyters in the Bible, therefore we should not have a difference in this church because if it's not in the Bible, it's, it has to be wrong. So they were seeing the office of the bishop as, as inherently evil because you can't make the clear-cut case from Scripture that, that there is a that, that the Episcopacy and Presbytery are two completely different things. Um, similarly, you have another group of dissenters, which are those original London Baptists, who um, object to infant baptism, and they object to, um, to, to any sort of hierarchy beyond what happens at the local congregation level. They basically say the, church, the fundamental unit of the church is the individual congregation, and the individual congregation appoints its own leaders. Um, which, which is an argument you just really can't make from Scripture at all. I mean, that's, that's, I, I have never seen a good argument for that in Scripture, um, that where they actually use the text of Scripture to make the argument that the local congregation gets to vote and appoint their own, own, own elders. You never see that. The appointments are always done top-down in the New Testament. Uh, Father, you had, a, you had something. Just, uh, it's very interesting, because I was in the uh, Presbyterian Church for a good number of years in the PCA, and, and it's interesting, even though they subscribe to a two-office view of, of elder and deacon, yet within elders, they split it off into teaching elder and ruling elder. So the teaching elder went to seminary and is the pastor. Right. And the elder is typically a lay person. And, and their, yeah, and their, their distinction of that is not quite the same distinction, but you end up having a threefold order anyway. Right. Similarly, in the Lutheran world, what ends up happening when they don't have bishops is as they organize into geographic regions, they appoint somebody to be the district president. What's a district president? He's a bishop. <laughs> Just call him a bishop, you know? Yeah, that's what he does. That's who he is. He is a bishop. Um, yeah, to, to the point where, where you do see some Lutheran groups retain that and some kind of bring back in that term. But yeah, you end up, it's almost impossible not to end up with that threefold order unless you have every congregation as every man for himself. Um, you know, and not to pick on our Baptist friends, but, you know, a, a, a congregation that calls itself Southern Baptist, well, the Southern, the, the, the entity, the Southern Baptist Convention only exists once a year, once every three years, when the convention is meeting. They may be churches that are affiliated with that convention, but there is not anything such as the convention except when the convention is actually meeting because every congregation is independent. Oops. So, okay, so that's what happens at the time of the Reformation. And our, our, our ordinal and our catechism basically point back to this older model saying this is the way things should be. Now, there was always a certain amount of charity until really the Oxford movement. There was a certain amount of charity towards other branches of the church that did not have bishops. So people from the continent, um, you, you have Richard Hooker, for example, saying, well, you know, the Scottish and the French folk, they don't have bishops. It'd be better if they did, but we're not, you know, that's, that's really their business. We can't do anything about that here, you know. Let's talk about our issues here. And that, that's, that's, the general, that's the general attitude that the English church has towards churches that don't have the episcopacy, um, but are kind of within that greater Lutheran Reformed world. Um, the radicals that come to be known as the Anabaptists, they just kind of get dismissed, period, because they do some weird stuff. 
Um, Modern-day Baptists are not really the Anabaptists. Um, you don't have a whole lot of Anabaptists around today anymore. I mean, your Quakers, your Mennonites kind of come from that world, but, I mean, yeah, the weird stuff going on at the time of the Reformation, that, that's no longer really around under that name anymore. But, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's really... We, we tend to have a certain charity about it until the 19th century when the people from the Oxford movement, kind of the proto-Anglo-Catholics, start to say, well, Catholicity equals bishops, so if you don't have bishops, you're not really Catholic, and therefore you're not really the church. Um, that is not the historical, historic Anglican position. Nor is the historic Anglican position that bishops don't matter and we have them just because it's a good idea. That's not the historic Anglican position either. The historic Anglican position is this is the pattern that we get from church history, we can prove from the Bible, and that's the way it should be. Um, the big thing that Usher argues in his essays is that the episcopacy needs to be less, in his days, about nobility, you know, kind of a function of the nobility, and needs to be delegated back to smaller dioceses where he really does function to preside over the presbyters, and that the bishop isn't doing things without his priests. Um, he has a really good model for that. These days it would be more the model bishop as CEO. Unfortunately, that's the way it happens, and every bishop I know hates the way that works because they spend all their time in meetings and no time pastoring, and none of them would like to see that. But at the same time, there are some practical issues with implementing what Usher says, and the big practical problem is um, once you get just a plethora of bishops running the church, it's impossible because you have too many, too many cooks in the kitchen. So, okay, that's, that's the history. We've got like three minutes, and then we'll get into this, some of the, um, the functions that we talk about in the rest of this section next week. Next week? Yes, next week. So uh, qu questions, comments on the historic background to the, to the orders of the church? How does Bishop Orgy fit in? Yeah, in other words, he's a bishop. We, the oh, okay. Church kept the oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's really what we're talking about is, is, is the reasoning behind, um, in our tradition, re retaining the Episcopacy when some of the other Protestants did not. Um, yeah, B Bishop Orgy, um, yeah, he, he's got a pedigree. You could trace it. Um, I haven't seen it, but I know, I know the folks that consecrated him, and, and so, I mean, yeah. Um, and yeah, he was consecrated um, in Nigeria, um, and, you know, and they've, they've maintained a very a very pure, pure Episcopal line. Um, and we'll talk about the functions next week. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Bishop Orgy fits in with all this, and yeah, and Bishop Orgy certainly doesn't like doing all those meetings. Right now, um, the way Cana is organized, he's him being the missionary bishop, that gives him a lot more responsibilities, but it also kind of has him preside over the bishops, the Cana bishops as well, which is an you know interesting, interesting issue. I have heard or read that In the Episcopal world? 
Um, so yeah, the Episcopal Church, their system was was intentionally modeled a little bit more democratically than the English system was. So they retained the three orders, but um, you had kind of a representative government in the way all that worked. So that's why at a general convention you would have um, the House of, of, of Laity, the House of Clergy, and the House of Bishops. Is that right? Yeah. House of Deputies, House of whatever. But um, yeah, giving, basically giving everybody a certain amount of equal, equal vote in those big church-wide decision makings. Right. Um, different parts of the Episcopal Church ran their diocese differently. Um, Virginia was always a lot more low church, a little bit less power in the bishops. Um, I think Maine and kind of up further up north, New England, was always a little bit more hierarchical in the way they did things. Um, and certainly the presiding bishop was never an archbishop. Uh, not this past, not this current presiding bishop, but the previous one tried to run it like that and frankly caused a huge mess um, with it. Uh, so that, yeah, that's not the way that's ever functioned. And in the, in the ACNA, while, while, the, while the archbishop does have a certain amount of archiepiscopal powers, he's really not a metropolitan bishop. He's more of a presiding bishop with the title of archbishop. In Nigeria, that is not the case. Their bishops have a lot of power. Um, their bishops, yeah, um, are, yeah, they, they're, they're functioning very much in that English model. And there's some good stuff and bad stuff about that. And we could... And I don't have enough first-hand knowledge to really deal with that. But All right, well, we are at after 7, so I will see you all in Evensong. God bless.